hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. In, in five, four, three, two, one. Welcome back to a Hamster with a Blunt Pen Knife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. After the length of our Bible absence from this podcast, I have the marvellous Stephen from New to Who with me. Say hello, Stephen. Hello, Joe. Thank you so much for having me back. This is so much fun. Oh my God, you're so clear. Jesus, God, people are actually going to hear what you're saying this time. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's my <laughs> eternal apologies to everyone who's had to suffer through the uh, underwater um, in mud audio track that I've submitted in the past. Why are you apologizing? It's my fault entirely. <laughs> <laughs> Don't know. Um, Stephen, we are correcting an oversight of this podcast today, <laughs> a huge oversight, and that is a period of the show which has not been given um, as much attention as perhaps it should have. It seems that way. It's rather underrepresented uh, on Hamster so far, although I think that should be fixed going forward, and I'm sure that it will. It's the Troughton era, which I think you were telling me you've only had three or four episodes so far. You know, the first one to be done was the Space Pirates episode two. I remember. <laughs> what all the it. hell is that all about? Eh? <laughs> and then, hang oh. on, Power of the Daleks was done. Mm-hmm. Um and uh, weather fear and then now now uh, well you care to introduce the story we're going to talk about today? Well, it's the Patrick Troughton story that I think is the best of his entire three years on a personal level. Uh, although perhaps not the best in terms of overall objective quality, which may be the war games. Uh, but for today, we're going to be doing the invasion. The invasion. So we are truly rectifying this error by doing eight episodes of uh, Patrick Trout. Um, you said something to me on Messenger the other day that I found really interesting because I don't think oh. it's, no, I don't, I don't think it's the norm. You said you, if you had to choose half of this story to do mm. a commentary on, you choose the first half. Whereas I think pretty much everybody would say, the second half where the invasion hits and all the iconic scenes of the side men coming out of the sewers and all of that stuff. Why the first half of this? Uh, I think the second half has some iconic imagery. Uh, as absolutely no doubt about that. But I also feel like it is a bit of a padded four-parter because you have these moments where you're just waiting for, you know, the cyber invasion from on high, for instance. Um, that there's, a, there's a lot of cat and mouse sort of stuff, which, which is fine. I mean, that's what Doctor Who does. But the first four parts is the spy fi part. It's the part that sort of sets up oh, the, the intrigue. Yeah, it, it's very much like an <sighs> Avengers episode played out over four Doctor Who parts, I feel. And that's that's what really sings to me of not just Doctor Who in the 60s, but um, Britain in the 60s. You know, the Avengers I've just mentioned, uh, the spy fi genre is huge. I love The Prisoner. I'm an enormous fan of the Michael Caine film, The Chris File, which is also around about this time, 1965. And I feel like it's all very redolent and in the air and it's just, you know, Doctor Who doing that uh, genre. And it just sings to me. So I think I think the first four parts are, are my favourite for those reasons. Whereas I, I have heard, I don't know, just being devil's advocate here, because I think the whole thing is extraordinarily good um, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, agree. certainly in terms of so i i did a commentary for web of fear not so long mm-hmm. ago and that's mm-hmm. douglas canfield's other 
big epic in Troughton's time. Quite right. And in terms yeah. of realization, like this is considered like a blueprint ish for what comes ahead, isn't it? You know, unit, um, and lots of action, um, alien invasions. Absolutely. I don't think there are many, there's some, but I don't think there are many 70s John Pertwee story that look as good as this. That's a really good point. Yeah. And I don't know why the reason for that would be, but why, why is that the case? Because <laughs> Douglas Campbell only did Inferno. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then his heart condition sort of meant that he wasn't directing after that, wasn't he? So maybe that, yeah, that could be a reason for it, I think. I think Ambassadors holds up. Inferno yeah. Uh, Michael, Michael Ferguson, who we very sadly lost this week. Just yeah, lost. yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think as well, they monetize this well. They've got two stories budget in this. So, you mm. know, like, like the sets feel quite impressive. But I just, I, certainly the location work. You mentioned, what was the film you mentioned? The, the Chris File. Yeah, there's, there is something very, very filmic and almost cinematic about some of the location work in this. Mm. Um, well, I mean, should we skip into it? I, mean, I feel like we've done it justice already and we haven't even started yet. <laughs> uh, any excuse to watch this wonderful story? Let's do it, Joe. All right. Well, you count us in then. Okay. Five, four, three, two, one. Thunderbirds are going. Thunderbirds are going. Well, okay. I've, I, of course, I have a question for you from the off. <laughs> And that is how do you feel about the animations? Because obviously episode one is completely animated. I actually adore the animations, particularly for the invasion. If all of the other animations after this point, I think it's 2007, um, were done in this way, I would be absolutely ecstatic. Um, there's a sort of purity about them where it distills the essence and the feel and the, and, and the look of it while still clearly being an animation, but not in a way that, you know, perhaps we were talking earlier off mic about Reign of Terror, which really does look like, you know, paper puppetry or, um, you know, others yeah. that are maybe... The Ice Warriors, I don't think, is another one that sort of stands up particularly well. This one is lovely. Um, and I'm a big fan of the uh, this one, but also animations in general. Like, at this point in time, I think I've mentioned this previously on Twitter, I would endure, you know, poorly synced sock puppets if it meant that i could watch the the missing episodes from you know, from the 60s but no this is the standard that i that i hold all animations to and it's just my favorite today okay the 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 moment in my life where i felt most embarrassed to be a geek is when my ex-husband walked into a room and was just staring at the tv like really like bemused and i'm like you're right and he's like yeah why aren't the pictures moving and I was like, oh, <laughs> this is this is a reconstruction. He's like, what do you mean? And I said, oh, well, it's, it's the soundtrack with, with telly snaps. He went, what are telly snaps? And I was like, well, oh, they're just stills. Because you're watching photographs of a Doctor Who story. <laughs> and, I, and I was like, yeah, what of it? <laughs> so, so the fact that these pictures bloody move, it's thank God, you know. Oh, yeah, geez. yeah. And gosh, when you put it that way, it kind of makes it sound like, you know, we're... Uh, you know the fat kid in primary school who's sort of like <laughs> looking the inside of the, of the crisp rack of wrapper for every last bit of uh, of goodness. Um, it does sound a bit tragic. But what are you no, talking about? I was the fat kid in primary school staring at the crisp oh. <laughs> <laughs> But do you know what? There's something very um, 
I said to you, uh, this artwork reminds me a bit of Adrian Salmon's work, which is very, yeah, very striking really and cool. bold. I, mean, I could see this animation as a comic strip, you know, as like a really mm -hmm. striking comic strip. Yeah, definitely that contrast. And um, it's probably the black and white aspect of it as well. Mm. Um, I, I don't think they did a color version of this. And it's not something that they did until uh, until later on in the in terms of the animations. But um, it, maybe because, you know, consciously it was done in black and white, they had to sort of, you know, heighten that contrast and make sure that there was a uh, you've, you've called it noir in the past, but that sort of noir aesthetic that really sort of comes through from really good, uh, well shot black and white stuff, which is, um, yeah, I think, I think it sort of adds to the mood. Definitely. Did you, um, did you hear uh, the animators talking on the documentary where they were like, for goodness sakes, we got to do two Cyberman episodes of Doctor Who and the Cyberman don't even feature. That's why they did the trailer. <laughs> they, did, they did the special trailer with the Cyberman coming out of the pools because they were like, we need to draw the Cyberman. <laughs> Bless them. Okay, I've got, a, I've got another question for you then. Okay. Uh, and that is, this comes after the Mind Robber. Um, yes. And the TARDIS comes together at the beginning. What the hell was going on there then? Was that all a dream? The Mind Robber? No, yeah. I think the Mind Robber is, you know, uh, set in this land of fiction that sort of sits outside of... Uh, the Doctor Who universe, and maybe is analogous for us to, um, you know, the universe in which Doctor Who actually plays out anywhere. It's very meta, you know, it's ahead of its time in the way that it's very postmodern, uh, in the way that it deconstructs what fiction it is uh, and uses characters and the like um, to tell that story. So, no, I, I, Mind Robber is, a, is an experiment of Doctor Who that um, succeeds spectacularly. Um, I think it's, it's one of the all-time greats. Stephen, say it doesn't exist. Say it. It doesn't exist. <laughs> it doesn't exist. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, okay. So this this is very much what you were talking about earlier. This sort of spy fire stuff, isn't it? You've got mm. un unit agents on um, IE territory. Yeah, undercover. Yeah, definitely. It's kind of like um, you know the first five minutes of an Avengers episode where one of uh, Steed's uh, you know, fellow ministry uh, people gets killed, you know, knocked off, and um, you know that's what sort of kickstarts the uh, the adventure. Um, maybe maybe that's unconsciously sort of pulling from it, but it, you know, uh, there's got to be that kind of gritty, um, you know, crime or or or, or, uh, or murder that takes place that sort of kicks off these uh, these stories. Ipcris file, for instance, starts off with the uh, the kidnapping of a government scientist, you know. Uh, and yeah, I think it's just sort of borrows from from that uh, from that genre, that's the spy fi genre. Yeah, love there's, it. There's there's a um, there's a reason why. Now I know this is hotly contested and it's entirely subjective, but there's a reason why uh, season six is my favourite Trown season, and it's nothing to do with the fact that that's the, that's the season where most of the stories exist. <clears throat> it's because it really veers in different directions you've got the dominators which is like this dreadfully crass b movie um yeah. it's like sci-fi b movie then you've got the mind robber which is this mind expanding like you say meta um creatively out there so and then you've got this which is completely pushing away from that well um, it's sci-fi and then it's the alien invasion uh so it's, it's two genres in one 
And then after this, you've got the Crotons, which is completely different again. And I, but I like the contrast, you know? Mm. Yeah, then, then we've got the Space Western for all of its joys. Uh, before we go to <coughs> War Games, which is just an, a, a pure epic in, in every sense of the word. Uh, I think season six really sort of benefits from the fact that they've broken out of that cookie cutter mold. Oh, sorry, I forgot the, the seeds of, of death there as well. But it, it breaks away from that cookie cutter mold of um, uh, season five, which is the base under siege, which is what seeds of death is anyway. Yeah, but that's but they only it's, do it it's once interesting, in isn't it? Yeah, that that is that feels like an aberration in this season, doesn't it? Uh, because there's so yeah. much other stuff. And what what's really great. It's like and I think this is probably the purest example is they absolutely lean into the genres that they're they're indulging in in mm. this season. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, you know it's been noted before that Doctor Who is best when it takes on other things and it's Doctor Who doing those other things. I think that's a real um, positive of season six and it's an experiment. And you know, three of those stories very much pay off and and succeed and the others perhaps don't i'm really going to is- be bold enough to suggest you're talking about the mind rubber the invasion and the war games uh, absolutely yes they are uh, they are fantastic stories all-time greats and you know deserve to rank up there with anything else that's um you know you regularly tops the pops you know in in classic doctor who can uh, i tell you something absurd about those three stories Ooh, what is it <laughs> those three stories alone I'll double the length of a McCoy season. <laughs> and that's only that's yeah. only three stories in this season. <laughs> yeah. I I cannot imagine what the work pressure would be like on on the regulars. And you know, obviously Pat Troughton in the end eventually said, you know, three years and out, um, which is a rule that other doctors have adhered to. But I, I kind of feel like it was much more of a frantic shooting schedule in the 60s than it was in, in, in later years. I wonder whether the three years and out actually sort of is, is valid, you know, when you're doing 12 or 13 an episode. And yes, they take, you know, nine months to shoot in Cardiff these days. Maybe maybe that's a consideration. But these guys were doing 44 it's episodes absurd, a year. isn't it? Absolutely. And there's, there's stories of tension on the set, isn't there, of, of Trout and kind of lose. Because apart from Bowler County, he's a very amiable guy and, and mm. you know, put everyone at ease on the set but at this point exhausted you know and Derek Sherwin who's not afraid to say what he thinks basically saying you know well I said to Patrick Trouton go on and go we'll replace you you know like 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 <laughs> things were pretty fraught but you know what's astonishing then is that these are as good as they are if this is being rush made that I don't think there's any sign of it in the invasion like I, look, I think a, a large part of it is the fact that Terence Dix is on board and very much, um, you know, helping with the, the script editing in the background here. So there isn't a, a, an outright turkey as such. Like, yes, the Dominator is, is a disaster, actually, so I should admit that. But I look at the Crotons, I look at the Space Pirates, and their biggest crime is that they're dull, but they're not um, failures of, of, of television. You know, they're, they're, they're trying not, new I've, things, though, aren't they? they, are, they exactly are, right. You know. Yeah, yeah. Exactly right. That and for is that reason, right, Sonny. Oh, sorry, I'll do anything to do, <laughs> to do a Milo Clancy impression. Spare me another, another slice of bread. <laughs> it's Jack May's character, General Hermack, that oh I like God. most from there. Can I do my impression of him? Oh, please do. And then can <clears throat> you do Eagle from Count Docula? What does he say? Um, hang on. <clears throat> Milo Clancy, this is V41. 
What are you doing in the area? Oh, no, I can't do it. I'll stop doing it now. He's, <laughs> he's hilarious. I think he's brilliant. He, yeah, he's unintentionally hilarious. But yeah, good old Jack May. That voice, magnificent. Most familiar to me, if I would go on a quick tangent, um, as Eagle in Count Ducula, if you ever watched that growing up in the 80s. I David Jason get Tyler. it. I love <laughs> it. I love Count Ducula. <laughs> Oh, um, good lord. I mean, I know this is nothing to do with the invasion. The most hilarious thing about the space pirates is that bit where Madeline Isigri looks right down the camera, like it gives an evil look, like <laughs> I'm the villain of this one, all right? <laughs> okay, so we're so, going to Professor Watkins's house, but it wasn't supposed to be Professor Watkins, was it? No, it was meant to be um, the Travers, wasn't it? Mm, that would have been nice, I think. I mean, I do, I love Isabel and I love her dad but it would have been that that would have had like nice unity throughout um what is it abominable snowmen web of fear the invasion yeah and i think it would have happened if it wasn't for the contractual dispute that eventually led to uh, lincoln and hayesman sort of storming off from from doctor Who forever um but i kind of feel like we've got uh, with the travers and here with the watkins prototypes that we see later in the 70s so with the travers uh, particularly Anne Travers, it's Liz Shaw. It's a prototype Liz Shaw, the very sort of competent, scientifically yeah. credentialed uh, professional scientist uh, who's involved in all of the chicanery uh, around mm. units and all that kind of stuff and alien invasions. And with Isabel Watkins, it's a prototype Joe, really. Um, oh, yes. She's not the 70s hippy-dippy, but she's certainly the late 60s or mid-60s Portobello Road. She know, is um, absolutely, isn't she, like uh, uh, the companion that wasn't? Oh, Isabel. completely. <clears throat> yeah, absolutely. And in some ways, I feel uh, a bit of a throwback to Polly. I think Polly's a very yeah. sort of character that draws from the same oeuvre. I mean, just but imagine her in that. those other stories. Hey, Stephen, are you stinking rich? <laughs> <laughs> she's great. But, but she's got like, she's got real gumption, doesn't she? Has to the sewers with her cameras later. And <laughs> she won't be bullied by the brigadier. You, you, no, absolutely. you man. You, you, know. <laughs> you man. <laughs> yeah, but that sort of proactive, fine young thing, uh, I just think is a great character. And, you know, it's, it's her native context and setting. Here she is in London. She's a photographer. She's obviously, you know, frequenting the same nightclubs like the Inferno <laughs> that we've perhaps seen elsewhere. But um, I dig your fab gear. <clears throat> fab gear, indeed. <clears throat> um, she, she just comes across as very contemporary, very it girl, very now, uh, just an enchanting character. Can I make a bold statement then? Oh, do. You might find me on this one. You don't find me very often, but you might find me on this one. Um, I don't think Jamie is necessary in season six. And I think he's written out more often than not. And the best material is given to Troughton and Padbury. And they're together in the Mind Rubber. They're together in the Crotons. They're together in a lot of the War Games. They, they absolutely um, are like the Doctor and Companion of this. Now, Hines is there, and I would never um, dispose of his chemistry with Troughton ever. Exactly. Because yeah. they're amazing. But I can just see a, 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 an alternative season. Um of Isabel coming along and the doctor's got these two girls around his ankles and it would be hilarious wonderful because um Zoe and Isabel have terrific chemistry they do 
Yeah, they absolutely do. Wouldn't that have been something? I never really thought about that. I mean, Jamie does get ridden out a fair bit, and obviously we sort of have him missing from one of the episodes later on we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, but the chemistry between them is all that counts, really. It's oh, like it's you know, so good. two yeah. great friends knocking about. Uh, I, I don't think you'd want to lose that. But you're right, for, strictly from a you know, narrative and plotting point of view, you could, you could just get away with... Um, Certainly Zoe, but imagine Zoe and Isabel. Oh, it would be. I mean, you don't really have until Tegan and Nissa, do you? You don't really have the two women. That's a really in the TARDIS. But these two would have been so when they're later on when they're blowing up that computer and things like that. (laughs) So much fun. Well, and it's weird because in the last episode of this, um, Jamie's written out completely, isn't he? He's shot in the leg. Mm Uh, and it's all That's right, yeah. Zoe doing all the all the smarts, isn't it, with the the coordinates of the ships and things like that. Oh, look yeah, at she's it. very much instrumental to the to the resolution, yeah. And and you remember Zoe in the Wheel in Space, how robotic mm. she was and 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 kind of cold. And look at her now; she's on these adventures. She's having fun. She's got this crazy feather bow around her neck. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's it's not true to say that there was no character development in classic Doctor Who, and that's yeah. just another example. You know, her, I mean, if you were to rewrite it in a modern day, you, you would definitely sort of bring that much more into the foreground. But, you know, the the way in which Zoe finds herself, um, uh, you know, upon leaving the, um, the wheeling space uh, as a human rather than just, you know, some sort of robotic, um, you know, memory uh, machine, I think it's one of the real highlights um, of classic Who and the the dynamics that um, these three have in, in season six. Just so watchable. So yeah, I've I've done something appalling <clears throat> by writing out Fraser Hines. I'm now uh, taking away the Jamie Zoe scenes, and they're just brilliant. Yes. I, I can't remember what scene it is, but there's what story it is. But there's one moment where Zoe says to Jamie, "Now, do you think you can manage that?" And he's like, "Of course I can." <laughs> Um, I I was very aware a moment ago of the score by Don Harper, his only score for Doctor Who. And it's one of the most memorable, isn't it, I think? Well, again, I feel very much influenced by John Barry's score for the Icarus file. There's that sort of, you know, twanging guitar with the distortion on it. If you have ever <clears> listened to or have um, seen the Icarus file, nice. even just the first five minutes with the um, uh, the opening credits, I think you'll, you'll very much sort of get the flavour of what I'm talking about. That That is instrumental in sort of establishing that spy-fi genre by, by borrowing on uh, those musical cues. And, you know, John Barry also did the Bond movies as well, let's, let's not forget. Oh, my word, he didn't do... Did he do the score for um, Goldfinger? Yeah. That is one of my favourite scores. <laughs> you know, you know when the planes are going towards Fort Knox. Oh sure, yeah. And it's like, <laughs> oh my god, it's so sorry. Nothing to do with the invasion. I'm so sorry. Well, you say that, but he's our first Bondian supervillain oh, of the sixties in Survivor's form. Parker, <laughs> he's so good. <laughs> now, like, okay. Um, do you think this is a this is a better villain than Mavic Chen? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same actor, obviously, uh, but there is something recognisable about the Bondian supervillain. But also, um, you know, you have uh, a character who you know is a tech startup 
uh, head uh, millionaire, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, um, who is not a particularly nice man and probably has designs to take over the world. I mean, it's a tale for the modern age as much as it is from the sixties, isn't it? Yeah, very much. Very. Much. And you know what? I think I think um, half the Avengers episodes are populated by Tobias Vaughn's, aren't they? Or, or yeah. You know, <laughs> Correct. Yeah. In, insane, you know, very rich people with grandiose schemes. Yeah. But I don't know, there's Just something there's something very sinister about Tobias Vaughan. Um and there's a scene later, which I will talk about later, uh, where he gets the professor to shoot him. I mm. think it's one of the most chilling scenes. Yeah, it is. In yeah. Doctor Who. And it's all about how it's played, really, not by how it's executed. He's so charming as well, isn't he? Well, again, another sort of, you know, leaf taken out of the James Bond book. Uh, you know, supervillains like Hugo Drax or Goldfinger, Doctor No, whether that's in the, in the Fleming novels or what we see on screen, uh, have that urbane charm, that sophisticated nature about them um and it's it's only in private that they reveal themselves to be utter utter lunatics uh it's yeah. um it's very telling actually what you're saying there because i was just reading the the subtitles and the doctor said um do you expect me to talk and he went no doctor i expect <laughs> you to die <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. well played I'm really <laughs> I can't promise I'll get any better throughout these eight episodes, all right? No, no, please keep it up. Well, <laughs> um, even the way that he's code codified, right? He's got the, the Nehru collar, which is very much borrowed from, from Dr. No. Mm. Um, you know, he sits behind, you know, a massive desk. Uh, it's all very sort of uh, filled with technology and sparkling surfaces. And, you know, it very much sort of speaks to um, a, a technocrat, I guess, you know, a, a Donald Pleasant's Doctor um, Blofeld in uh, "You Only Live to, um, You Only Live Twice." I think this is this is the sort of image that Donald Trump wanted. You know, this kind of terrifying, <laughs> but unfortunately, he's such a cartoon character, we could never take Donald Trump seriously. Whereas, um, yeah, because I'm seeing in the animation, I'm seeing Trump rather than Tobias Vaughan right now. I don't know why. <laughs> yes. Yeah, but that's because they are inherently. Um, Quite similar. <laughs> well, but also just inherently um, funny characters. Like we can't take them seriously. There's, there's an element of, of, the, of the piss take about them. They're too arch for the real world. They're too crazy for the real world. They've got these plans that just would never function and you know take off in the real world. Um, they are cartoon villains. Well, it's terrifying then that one of those people was the head of the free world, you know, like, at one point. Um, I, mean, there's, right. I mean, there's something about a bad boy, right? And he's, because he's so incredibly smooth, if Tobias Vaughan wanted to take me out for dinner, I would be, absolutely be there. I might not be alive <laughs> by the end of the night, I might be dead, but it'll be a hell of a meal. You won't be eating dinner. You will be the dinner. You'll be dropped into the shower yeah. tank. <laughs> or turned into a side man. One of the yeah. other. <laughs> It'll be worth the risk. What a charmer. Ay, ay, ay. This is a scene that I remember. Now, I first uh, came across this, and this is probably a no surprise to you and the, and the listeners who have um, heard my episodes in the past, through the target. And one of the, the great sort of um, uh, moments that I thought, hang on, something's wrong here is when the doctor says, 
the rate at which Vaughan blinked was far too infrequent for for you know of a typical human and I was like oh hang on a second maybe he's been cybernized or whatever the term is Uh, and then we sort of cut back to him in his office peering down at them and in a moment what we'll see is confirmation of our suspicions it's it's, um, Ian Martyr isn't it that did the novelization yeah I love his books I I think he's he's incredibly good writer yeah and very much sort of um, adds to that noir spy-fi um, genre and feel about the story. I, I always felt like he wasn't afraid to alter from what was on the, on screen. Ian Martha, like <clears throat> he'll he'll add yeah. layers, and and he was one of those writers as well that um, focused on like the five senses. So he really put you in a mm. scene. Whereas terroristic mm. terroristic could could like create a scene with absolute economy in like a sentence. Yep. Um, I'd say Ian Martyr is more like the, the J.R. Tolkien of, <laughs> of the, the target range. <laughs> you know, he, he has a bit of substance to it. <laughs> That's a fair call, definitely. Both that, equally valid ways of telling the story. That flew by. It always does, though, doesn't it? Well, I'll tell you what. How do you feel about watching actual um, cine footage for episode two? I don't know if I'm ready for it. I quite enjoy it. <laughs> Can we just well, go back to that? 